All right. Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to see you all. Uh, let's uh, open with prayer as we begin tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for uh, this time that we have where we can uh, study and, uh, and learn and grow, and uh, especially as we're um, reading this book from C.S. Lewis and we consider uh, some of the ways that Satan uses to try to attack us in our, uh, our faith and our Christian walk. We ask that your spirit would be with us, that you would be uh, aiding us and helping us to grow in our faith, that we might be uh, wise in how we live and walk, and that you would uh, help us to have open eyes to, to see um, our sin and the attacks of the evil one and, and how best we may try to, to grow in grace, to follow you and to, to be faithful as followers of Christ. Uh, we pray all of this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Well, as we begin this evening, we're moving into uh, letters three and four from the screw tape letters. And I think especially as we start to get into some of these letters here, we uh, really start to see some of the value of this book, uh, particularly in terms that, um, you know, this book isn't, it's not a book on doctrine per se, but what we're going to see here is uh, begin to have some insight into how is it that we are attacked spiritually. Uh, Some of the themes that we'll see tonight are uh, issues of sanctification, relationships with others, uh, and particularly prayer in letter number four. And uh, I think Lewis does a good job of presenting ways that Satan does attack us. What are tactics that he uses to try to, to hinder us in our Christian walk? Ways to try to, uh, to tri- trip us up. And uh, especially as we read through some of these, there may be things that um, we've seen in our own lives that we can start to become more aware of that, okay, yes, I've experienced this. I've, I've had this attack used against me. Maybe it's been successful against me. Or perhaps we know it just by uh, you know, our relationships with others. And we'll, we may see some, uh, some examples that we've seen in other people and that we can then be aware of to help encourage them and, and help them to grow in the future. As we look at uh, letter three, the two big things I want us to see here is uh, we see Lewis talking a little bit about uh, sanctification, particularly the, the beginning of sanctification in a new convert. And then the second thing uh, connects with relationships with others. Here in this letter, it's the relationship of the new Christian with his mother. Um, but this, of course, applies to many relationships besides just that between a mother and son. This can apply to husband and wife. This can apply to siblings. This can apply to co-workers. It's, it's bigger than just that. That's just the, the context here in this letter. So I want to first talk about kind of the, the beginning stages of sanctification. And one of the things that Wormwood says uh, right there in the opening paragraph, he talks about how the enemy, which, which is God, will be working from the center outwards, gradually bringing more and more of this patient's conduct under the new standard. Uh, and so what Wormwood is recognizing here, and of course this is part of the Christian life, is that when we're converted, there's a change that happens. God starts to work on us, uh, and he starts to make us... Um, You know, here he uses that language of the new standard, but that new standard, of course, is to become more like Christ. It's to to be more conformed to the image of God, to be more uh, able to obey the law, to fight against sin, to not sin, and things like that. Our Shorter Catechism talks about sanctification as being the the work of God's free grace. It's something that happens progressively. When we're saved, we don't just suddenly become perfect holy creatures. It's a process that happens over time where we are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. But this is something that starts slowly. And here you have this language used of it. It starts at the the center. It starts inwardly, and it starts to reflect uh, itself in outward actions. But it doesn't all just happen in a moment. And part of the advice of Wormwood here to the the tempter is to, to be proactive in trying to hinder this work of sanctification, finding ways to uh, attack the individual so that they don't grow uh, in a lot of these different areas. Uh, the particular example, we'll, we'll look more at this in a little bit, is this relationship that he has with his, his mother. And so he tries to, he, he's trying to identify something. What is a, a weakness, a weak point that you can uh, attack and hinder this new person? And this is, that, uh, this is one of those weak points. And he tries to, to take advantage of it. 
uh, a little bit more on sanctification here. You have it's a, a slow, gradual process. Uh, the scriptures use this language of, you know, we grow up in maturity. We start off as babes in the faith. Uh, we start off drinking spiritual milk, and over time, uh, we are called to grow and mature. Just as a little child can't do everything an adult can do at the beginning, but grows up and matures and is strengthened and made able to do more things, so it is often in the, the Christian life as well. And that's one of the things that sometimes it can be difficult for uh, new converts in particular to recognize. Uh, sometimes when someone's converted to the Christian faith, they, there's dramatic changes that happen. And sometimes they want everything to happen right away. That's not how it works. There may be great beginnings and starts and changes, but it doesn't all happen all at once. There's a, a process. Uh, here he uses this, this, uh, uses this language, keep his mind off the most elementary duties by directing it to the most advanced and spiritual ones. You know, there's a lot of things that we desire to be as we grow up in Christ and to grow up in our faith. And sometimes, uh, as, you know, especially for newer Christians, you might try to jump to areas that you're not ready for yet, that God hasn't um, sanctified you to the point to be able to do that. Uh, one of my old pastors used to use this phrase. He said, do what you can, not what you can't. What he meant by that is this. Sometimes we, are, we, we, we set lofty ideals for ourselves of how we want to live and what we want our life to look at. You know, we could say, you know what, I want to read 10 chapters of the Bible every day. I want to pray for two hours, and it's just going to be this, you know, this great spiritual high point that's going to happen every single day, and it's just going to carry me through the rest of the day, and my life's going to be wonderful. Now, reading 10 chapters of the Bible a day and praying for two hours every day are good things to do. And maybe those are things that we should strive to move more towards, not necessarily saying we have to do it that way, but, you know, you know, praying more is a good thing, right? But if you haven't built up the habit of setting time aside to have devotions, of reading one chapter a day, you know, if you go from reading zero of the Bible a day to then trying to read 10 chapters of the Bible a day, probably not going to do very well after a couple weeks. you got to build up to it. It's something slow. Maybe God gives you the ability to, to just jump in and, and grow up by leaps and bounds very quickly in certain areas, but that's not the normal process. God in his wisdom has decided that in changing us and in sanctifying us, it's a slow, gradual process. We need to recognize that. And in our uh, in our seeking to grow in our spirituality, we need to, to not become discouraged when we fall short, but seek to make those gradual but real and true improvements in our sanctification. Another thing we see talked about in this letter is this um, uh, trying to drive a wedge between introspection and external action. Wormwood talks about, you must bring him to a condition in which he can practice self-examination for an hour without discovering any of those facts about himself which are perfectly clear to anyone who has ever lived in the same house with him or worked in the same office. What he's getting at here is that sometimes uh, we can be very good at just thinking about what's going on in our internal life. We spend a lot of time thinking about our emotions. What are our, our feelings towards God? What are our um, you know, our attitude and things like that. And, and that's an important thing. But if that's all that we do, and we're never concerned about how it actually plays itself out and how we live our lives, that's not really growing in sanctification. Uh, one of the things we'll see being played out between these, these letters is uh, Satan is going to try to get us to focus, all, uh, focus a lot on emotions to the exclusion of how we act and... Uh, treat other people. Uh, this will come up a lot in, in talking about prayer. Uh, you know, you evaluate your prayer based on how you feel at the end of it, not actually on, you know, the actual dialogue or communication that you're having with God. Uh, just focus on the emotions, focus on producing emotions within yourself, things like that. 
And that's one of the things that Satan will try to do with us in our sanctification. And we just become focused on, on self-reflection and focusing on our, our inner feelings and emotions and things like that. And, you know, people in our household can look at us and be like, you know, you've got some things you need to work on. You might be a, you know, you might be a little bit of an angry person uh, and you just don't see it because you're so focused on everything else. You don't even examine how your actions are affecting other people. Everyone else can see it. Your spouse, your mom, you know, the people that live in your household, your coworkers, they can see some things you need to grow in. But Satan doesn't want us to see it. He wants to focus on everything else except the actual issues we have going on. And so in sanctification, self-reflection and things like that are important. But we also need to be able to evaluate and properly see not just how we feel and how our, our, our motivations and inward parts, but we also need to see just the basics of our external actions. And sometimes in sanctification, instead of trying to, to, to grow in the leaps and bounds that we want to grow by, sometimes God wants us to start with just some small baby steps. Start moving one step forward before you start trying to take 5, 10, 15 feet leaps and bounds. Not saying that that can't happen, but that's generally being how God works. So that's a little bit here about just some of the, the sanctification that uh, Wormwood is talking about and trying to... to uh, to get this tempter to try to, to, to trip up and, and hinder this new Christian. The other aspect that's very major in this letter is uh, the relationship with other people, especially the relationship with his mother. One of the interesting things he talks about here uh, is in talking about, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to prevent him from praying for his mother. He knows enough that he's supposed to pray, and he knows enough that he's supposed to pray for other people, especially people he loves, and so he's going to pray for his mother. So you can't stop that, but you can try to turn that into something that's actually not profitable. And one of the distinctions he makes here is this distinction between uh, just because you're praying for someone doesn't necessarily turn into actual love and action for the person. Uh, so he uses this example. Make sure that they are all, uh, when he's praying for his mother, make sure that they are always very spiritual that he was always concerned with the state of her soul and never with her rheumatism. Uh, part of the reason for this is his attention will be kept on what he regards as her sins. So what you see going on here in this, in this particular relationship is that uh, there's conflict between the mother and the son. And so he's, uh, the, the attack here is in this way, that Satan is going to try to use that to spoil the spiritual action that the new Christian is trying to do. He's trying to pray for his mother. That's a good thing. But maybe he's not praying with right motives. Maybe his praying is now becoming more about, you know, he doesn't actually care about how his mother is doing, because if he did, he'd care not just about her soul, but about her physical condition as well, like her rheumatism. And this praying for her soul turns into rather a praying about his gripes about his mom. You know, she bugs me in this way. She annoys me in this way. Earlier in the letter, he says, "Keep in uh, that's not it. Build up between you in that house a good settled habit of mutual annoyance, daily pinpricks. So bring up in the mind of this person all the faults of his mom. Have that constantly before him. All the ways she annoys him. All the things she does that are just you know grind his gears." And then, you know, incorporate that into his prayers, that he's constantly, he's just praying about her soul, how much she, she needs help, all her faults. And instead of actually praying for his mother, he's made up this imaginary person in his mind with all these issues that he's, and many of them, he may have invented about her. So he's not actually praying for her. He's not actually loving her. And then you divorce that, not just the, the prayer, but you divorce that from the action. And so that he doesn't actually uh, care for his mother in, um, uh, in particular ways that she needs, such as she probably needs help with her rheumatism. No, don't think about that. That's the real mother. Start to make up this imagined mother with all these problems and with all these issues and, and focus on that. That's the real thing she needs help with. And so we see this, you know, uh, using prayer, trying to turn prayer into something that's, uh, that's not actually good based on this relationship and interaction. In addition, he, he, he pushes, the, um, pushes trying to turn this new Christian into uh, developing this habit of constantly 
looking for faults in his mother. You know, she, she says something in this particular way, and it just annoys you, and, and keep that before him. He writes, let him assume that she knows how annoying it is, and does it too annoy. If you know your job, he will not, uh, uh, he will not notice the immense improbability of the assumption. And of course, never let him suspect that he has tones and looks which similarly annoy her. As he cannot see or hear himself, this is easily managed. And so this idea is, you know, look for faults in the other person. Uh, Satan is going to try to turn us into people who are very quickly angered and upset with each other. Because that causes strife, that causes division, that causes sin, and we don't love each other. And that's going to hurt our, our sanctification and our relationships. And then, of course, don't be conscious of how one treats other people. You know? I mean, the reality is what, what C.S. Lewis is describing here, I'm sure there's all of us can point to examples, especially if you've been married. You know, when you're living in close, close proximity to someone else, uh, or even if you've just been in a family, there's going to be times when people rub you the wrong way. When people do something that annoys you, when people say something with a, a certain tone or a certain look, and you're like, well, they just did that in order to, to make me angry, to make me upset. Well, the reality is, yeah, maybe that's true, but often it's not true. Maybe they're just having a bad day, and so they look a little grumpy. Maybe they're not feeling well. But no, we, you know, we're not going to give the benefit of the doubt, and that's not what Satan wants us to do. Satan wants us to be fault finders, to, to always assume the worst with people, and to always assume the best of ourselves and be upset when people don't do that. Um, <laughs> Lewis goes on to talk about, your patient must demand that all his own utterances are to be taken at their face value and judged simply on the actual words, while at the same time judging all his mother's utterances with the fullest and most oversensitive interpretation of the tone and context and the suspected intention. And of course, she must be encouraged to do to same, uh, the same to him. Hence, from every quarrel, they can both go away convinced or very nearly convinced that they are quite innocent. I mean, I, I've seen this in families, and I'm sure many of you have seen this as well. This is a very simple and easy tactic that Satan uses to just cause up strife and dissension and anger and conflict among human beings. It's very easy to do. But this is not how we're supposed to be. And we see this especially in the, the New Testament where it talks about love. You can think of 1 Corinthians 13. How are our approaches supposed to be? Uh, how are we supposed to um, treat each other and relate to each other? Love covers all things. Love bears all things. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. All these things that Wormwood is trying to, to get to happen in this new Christian's life are in direct conflict with everything that 1 Corinthians 13 says. That's not what love is supposed to be like. So we need to, to think about this and recognize that these are very easy and simple tactics that I've fallen prey to. I'm sure many of you have fallen prey to or at least witnessed going on in people's lives. But rather, we are not to be fault finders. Rather, in our relationships with others, we are to put on love, and love is to characterize how we walk with other people. Uh, one last thing um, from this uh, letter towards the very end uh, Wormwood's asking questions about uh, the religious position of this uh, lady. Um, is she jealous of the fact that her son has become uh, a Christian? Um, is she annoyed by it? Is, uh, he uses this language, does she feel he is making a great deal of fuss about it? Or perhaps that he's getting in on very easy terms. Remember the elder brother in the enemy's story. That's talking about the, the prodigal son where the elder brother was actually upset about the, the younger brother returning and repenting. Because, you know, he just got in. You just accepted him. You just you made it so easy. I've been the one who's faithful and you know, to you, Father, you know, through all the, the ups and downs, and yet you just throw this big feast for the, the younger brother, the prodigal son. This is something that's uh, an interesting insight from Lewis, and it's something uh, I've witnessed and, and known in other situations, that sometimes if you're in a... Uh, I'll use the example of a family. If you're in a family where some people are converted and some are not, and some of those who are not become converted, it actually can be very difficult for those who are already converted within that family. 
because their entire relationship with this person has been this relationship of tension. You know, I'm the Christian, you're not. And they've probably had to bear with a lot of things from the, you know, the unbelieving member of the family. And then when that person becomes converted, it is very easy to be like that elder brother and to hold a grudge about, wait a second, I just have to forgive you of all these ways that you've acted and misbehaved and been a terrible person over the years. And now you've just become a Christian. And all of a sudden, like, we just forget that and we start over and we're on an equal playing field. I mean, that could be a very difficult thing to process humanly. Uh, I've, I've seen it. Um, and that's where this story of the, you know, the prodigal son is very important, that we are not to be like that enemy. And so it, it's interesting here that Lewis recognizes that and incorporates that into this letter. You know, what is the position of his mother? What is his mother's attitude towards him? Is she upset with him that, oh, he's become a Christian, and now he's, you know, he's just making all this fuss, and it's a nuisance and annoyance, or perhaps she's like the elder brother. Maybe she's a Christian, but she's annoyed that he just kind of got in after living waywardly for so long. You also use the example, you know, is she upset about the fact that, you know, she tried to raise him in a right way, and it had no effect on him, and now all of a sudden he, he just suddenly becomes a Christian and just ignored everything I tried to teach him. There's a lot of interesting little things that, uh, that Lewis is incorporating here at the end, and it may not necessarily uh, apply to all of our individual situations, but uh, we'll, we may, now that we think about it, we may see these kinds of things popping up uh, with other people we know. So that's just uh, one little uh, tidbit there from the end of the letter. Before I move on to letter four, are there any questions or comments about uh, letter three, this relationship with the mother, sanctification, you know, other stuff as well. Didn't talk about everything. Yeah, Jeff. Um, the, the other demon's name was Blue Bow. Uh, it's screw tape, uh, screw tape and Wormwood. Yeah, but uh, he tells. Oh, yes. Gluebos, yes. He's heard demons. And apparently, that Lewis has that as a play on the word on gluttony and obesity. So the mother seems to have some type of eating disorder. Yeah, that's very possible. Um, for those on Zoom, Jeff was pointing out the other uh, screw tape and talking to Wormwood uh, references the tempter of the mother, whose name is Glubos. And Jeff's pointing out that may be a, um, a combination of gluttony and obesity, which may hint to us of some of the particular issues that the mother has. She may be overly fond of food, overweight, things like that, um, which is an interesting little tidbit that, you know, especially in some of the later letters that develop their relationship. Uh, may come into play. Yeah, Randy. I, could, I can't remember. Was the mother a Christian? Uh, at this point in the book, we don't know because um, Screw Tape asks about it. He says, um, "Tell me something about the old lady's religious position." And I feel like you know what? I don't remember. I read ahead, and that was several months ago, and I haven't gone caught up to where. Because uh, this will come up again in several places. I can't remember if the mother's a Christian or not. But at this point, we don't know yet. Well, they, they, they do discuss that what she considered uh, she gave him such a good opportunity of learning childhood that maybe she tried to raise him up. It, it's possible that she, based on that, it's possible that she did try to raise him as a Christian. But we don't know what her attitude is at this point. Brother, example of, of, yeah. Lane. Just pointed <laughs> uh, Lane's uh, pointing out, you know, with the you know that title, Glubos, Maybe we shouldn't call each other honey and sugar and things like that. You know, may 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 give the wrong connotation. It just means they're sweet, right? You know, something like that. Uh. <laughs> Any other uh, comments or questions before moving on to letter four? Okay. So letter four in particular uh, focuses uh, really on this topic of prayer and, uh, and is presenting uh, forms of attacks on prayer. How are ways that uh, Satan can try to uh, hinder us or distract us in our prayer life? Um, the first thing is, uh, uh, Screwtape says, the best thing where it is possible is to keep the patient from the serious intention of praying altogether. I think most of us can probably testify that 
we can look at periods of our lives where praying can be very difficult, where we just, it's just something that's attacked in us and um, something that we, you know, you might feel almost an, an active uh, hindrance in, uh, in your life, which of course we're pretty good at doing just on our own. But some of the particular things he focuses on are things like this. Uh, one is he wants the individual, the new Christian, to focus on their mood in prayer and to avoid active concentration and intelligence. Intelligence would be like actively thinking through what it is that you're praying. Um, he says this in the, in the letter, what this will actually mean to a beginner will be an effort to produce himself a vaguely devotional mood in which real concentration of will and intelligence have no part. Then he goes on to, to reference a, uh, a poet who talks about uh, that he did not pray with moving lips and bended knees, but merely composed his spirit to love and indulged a sense of supplication. That is exactly the sort of prayer we want. Um, then he goes on to talk about that it's, um, yeah, that's the sort of prayer we want because it's actually lazy and doesn't actually do anything. Uh, this is an idea of, you know, some people may talk this way. You know, we, we, you don't just like, you know, your, your prayer with God is just about, you know, being in an emotional state. You know, I'm just feeling happy about God right now. You know, um, uh, I just have the spirit of love. You know, you've got this sense of just asking God for things. But you're not actually having any dialogue. You're not actually praising God for anything. You're not confessing your sins. You're not thanking him for anything. You're not actually asking him for anything. You're just creating an emotional state. And this is something that's in our culture. You know, uh, you've heard this phrase before, you know, sending good thoughts your way. What in the world does that mean? Sending good thoughts your way. Um, there, there's nothing intelligent about it. It's just, you know, oh, I just, I just want, I'm just going to send positive vibes towards you. Like, I mean, I, I, but it's very easy for Christians to think that's what prayer is. The prayers is just, you know, being having this emotional state towards God. I'm going to send some happy thoughts upwards. It's not actually prayer. Now, there is, you know, uh, Lewis does talk about, you know, a prayer of silence, or there can be a prayer without words. And uh, I think you see this in Romans where it talks about, you know, the, the groanings that are too deep for the words, and the Spirit helps us in prayer in those moments. It is possible that, you know, you can pray in a state and there, it's you know, you're in a position of such deep distress that you're just crying out to God. You're not even able to fully articulate what it is you're crying about, and the Spirit helps you in your prayer there. So it's not like you can't pray without words in a certain sense. But that's not what what's talked about in Romans is not what's talked about here by this poet and what many people talk about today. Just kind of being in a positive emotional state. And that's one of the things that, uh, that uh, Lewis comes back here again and again is just focus on the emotions, focus on how you're feeling, focus on trying to produce feelings, and be distracted from actually thinking about God or talking to God or knowing who God is and, and knowing his presence in your prayer. Just focus on your emotions, focus on your attitude, things like that. That is very common. Uh, among Christians today, it may be something that, you know, has affected some of us at periods as well. Uh, another thing he talks about is, is bodily positions. Uh, this is something that can be sensitive, you know, we, you know, Roman Catholics and Anglicans and others can place a, a large emphasis on, you know, kneeling or posture or things like that. And, and sometimes as Reformed Presbyterians, we're like, well, no, those are excesses, and it doesn't matter at all about your bodily posture. Well, that's probably going a little bit too far. We we don't mandate bodily positions, but that doesn't mean our bodies don't matter when we pray. Uh, I think an example of this is, you know, uh, I've experienced this. I know others who have as well that, you know, man, I just really struggle in my prayer life. Well, when is it when you try to pray? Well, I try to pray every day, and it's normally when I'm laying in bed right before I fall asleep. And I pray for about 30 seconds, and then I fall asleep. Well, part of the problem with your prayer life is your bodily position is incredibly conducive for sleep, and incredibly non-conducive for active praying. Um, you know, that's a situation where, yeah, your bodily position matters. You know, if you're laying back like this, like, I, I, that's part of the problem. Maybe you need to, you know, when you're trying to pray, 
find a way that you can be sitting upright or not doing it right before you go to bed or, or things like that. And I think that's the idea that, that Lewis is trying to uh, communicate here. He's not saying, you know, you have to kneel. He's not saying you have to, you know, you know like the Muslims, when they prostrate themselves out and their, their temples face in the east, you know, he's not saying anything like that. But he is saying this, you know, we have bodies and our bodies affect us. You know, if you can't pray because you're just laying down exhausted and about to go to bed, you know, you need to change how you're doing this. You need to do it at a different time. You need to do it in a different position where you can actually concentrate and be awake and things like that. And that's something as, you know, as Reformed Presbyterians that maybe we need to think about a little bit more. Um, you know, bodily position does matter. Doesn't mean you have to do it on your knees. Doesn't mean you have to, you know, to do it in a certain position. But if it's hindering you, Try other things. See if uh, see if that may be something that affects you. Um, he talks about this as well. Um, well, he goes on to talk about, you know, focus again on the feelings. Focus on um, your emotions. He says, teach them to estimate the value of each prayer by their success in producing the desired feeling. And never let them suspect how much success or failure of that kind depends on whether they are well or ill, fresh or tired at the moment. You know, you can, you can have a, a great moment of prayer with God and feel totally terrible because of the fact that you're sick. It doesn't mean your prayer was bad. It just means your body's sick and that affects your emotions and that doesn't necessarily reflect anything on the, that moment of prayer you had with God. But a lot of people, they focus on the emotions. They focus on, you know, we got to produce emotions when we pray. You know, if we're, if we're praying for, or if we're asking God for love, we need to, to start feeling love inside us. If, you know, you're praying for, uh, these are just the examples he uses. If you're praying for courage, well, then you need to start feeling brave. If you're praying for forgiveness, well, you better start feeling forgiven right then and there. That doesn't always happen. And there could be lots of reasons. So, some stuff is benign is just whether or not you're sick or tired in that particular moment. If you're tired, you may not feel great emotions, but that does not mean your prayer was bad or didn't work or that God didn't hear it. We need to to recognize, and I should say this too, emotions are important. It's not that we should just completely discount them, but we need to keep them in their proper place and proper order. There can be times when we have great emotional experiences connected uh, with prayer in our relationship with God. But our prayer life is not determined by how often that happens or the, you know, the, the, um, how intense the emotional experience is. That's where a lot of Christians start to get things wrong. They think their relationship with God is defined by how they feel and their emotions. And this, this bleeds into worship. This bleeds into, you know, we want a we wanna worship experience that makes us feel certain things about God. Well, reality is you're probably more affected by chord changes and other things, and it actually has nothing to do with spirituality and has nothing to do with God. But that's what our culture and and Christianity today in America, that's what it focuses on. Produce the emotions. Produce the emotions. Emotions aren't bad, but they need to be put in their proper place and proper perspective, and they don't run everything. So that's one of the things that Satan's going to try to tempt us on. He's going to try to get us to focus more on our feelings and distract us from thinking about and focusing on God. And we, shouldn't val- or we shouldn't judge the value of our prayers or the efficacy of our prayer by the emotions that it produces in us. One final thing he talks about is, is this. He, you know, he, he's writing, of course, as, uh, as spiritual beings, as demons, and he talks about you know, one of the disadvantages of humans is that they aren't able to see the spiritual realm. The humans do not start from that direct perception of him, which we unhappily cannot avoid. Uh, and so there's this idea they're communicating that, and I don't know if this is true or not, you know, in the spiritual realm, do they have a greater sense and vision of God that we do in his omnipresence and things like that? I don't know. Um, but the reality is we're human beings with eyeballs who are limited to seeing this physical realm. And there's a lot of things that exist that we can't see. That whole spiritual realm, we can't see. And so Lewis goes on to talk about how very often in praying, 
we can start to create a God of our own imagination and even sometimes externalize it in the world. You know, he uses an example. I've known cases uh, where uh, what the patient called his God was actually located up into the left at the corner of the bedroom, bedroom ceiling. You know, so he prays, he, you know, he prays to this point, and of course, probably the intention is, you know, it's, that's helping him to focus on God above, but, you know, distract him. Gets him to focus on that point in that location as if he's actually praying to something there as opposed to the God who actually is. Uh, this is uh, an example that connects with, you know, crucifi- uh, crucifixes, um, imaginations in our head, things like this. And he talks about, you know, whatever the nature of the composite object, you must keep him praying to it, to the thing he has made, whether it's external or whether it's in his mind, not to the person who has made him. So it's one of the, the temptations, one of the, the hindrances that Satan will try to use against us in prayer is that instead of us praying to God, he tries to manipulate us into praying to something we've constructed instead of to the actual God uh, who's made us. And of course, the, the, the cure for that is to, um, is to recognize who God is and that God is real, external from us in a sense. He's not us. And he's invisible, but he is real and he is present. I even use this language. He is this in, uh, real, external, invisible presence there with him in the room and never knowable by him as he is known by it. You know, when we pray, God is with us when we pray. God is with us when we gather together on Sunday mornings. He's promised, when two or more are gathered together in my name, there am I in your midst. We are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. We're called the temple. We're living stones, the house of God. God is truly and really dwelling with us. And when we enter into the, you know, whether you're using that language of the secret closet that Jesus talks about when you pray, go into your closet and shut the door, um, whether you're doing it something like that or just praying on your own, you know, you are truly with God, bared before him in that moment of prayer. We don't often think like that. But that's part of the idea that, that Lewis is trying to communicate the, the reality, even though we can't see it with our eyes, and we may not be able to sense it with our five senses, the truth of the fact that God is actually really with us in prayer beyond our senses. And that's something that Satan doesn't want us to think about or to recognize. He wants us to start to think of God as an object, as a, something in our head, a location at the top of the ceiling, a crucifix, you know, something like that. That's not right. That actually, what will happen then, and this is what Satan is trying to get us to do, he tries to get us to start to pray to that thing rather to God than God himself. I mean, that's a problem, especially in you know, a lot of the different uh, you know, Eastern Orthodoxy, um, Catholicism, their veneration of icons, images, crucifixes, things like that. You know, they say, this is a help for me to pray to God. But what does Satan use it for in the end? You just start praying to that thing. I mean, I know a, you know, a non-denominational church where they had a, a you know, picture of Jesus in the front of the sanctuary, and it caused a, a big stir. And some people are like, well, that helps me when I worship. It's like, no, it doesn't. In the end, you're actually starting to become more focused on this image, which is nothing and is not an accurate representation, representation of Jesus, that you're actually being hindered in your worship of God, and that's exactly what Satan wants. That's exactly what Satan wants. You know, to bring that more forward to modern times, you know, a lot of times we as humans get to visualize these pictures that have been painted uh, of Christ and icons and stuff like that. But then also, too, there's other media like uh, the movie Passion of Christ, The Chosen is a real, real popular TV show amongst Christians. Yep. And it's just going down that same path. Yeah. Uh, just, uh, I'll get to you in a second, Lane, just to, to zoom. Oh, sorry. 
Yeah. They talk about praying in the spirit. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of the overall topic of what you're talking about. Somehow to enter into where you're in the spirit and not physically worry about the position. Right. Yeah, so um, so, so first to, to bounce off of what Jeff was saying, just for Zoom, and then uh, to, uh, to talk about what Lane was asking about. Uh, so Jeff was mentioning, you know, this doesn't just apply to prayer, but we see it coming up in our day and age in a lot of different modern forms, especially in uh, visual imagery, such as the Passion of the Christ, the TV show The Chosen, things like that, that Christians can get up get caught up in this visual representation of Jesus that actually isn't real. And it's a, I think it's something we need to take seriously. When the Bible talks about it, and when Jesus says, it is better for me to leave that I may send the Holy Spirit. And he says, um, blessed is he who has not seen and yet believed. Uh, and I, I believe Peter talks about that as well, that God has given us his word and he has given us the visible signs of the sacraments, but he did not leave him physically present here. And there's this idea that we approach God through the eyes of faith, not through our physical eyes. And yet our culture is a very image-based culture, and that ends up becoming a distraction for a lot of people, not just in prayer, but in many other ways. And you get Christians who get wrapped up in the chosen, and I mean, I haven't looked into it, but from what I've read, there's Mormon stuff in there. Like, that's not Christian at all. Anyway. They they put words in Jesus' mouth that aren't from the scriptures, but are from like the Book of Mormon and other places as well. And well, not only that, Jesus didn't talk that way. Jesus always, like if uh, when the rich young ruler approached, you know, he said, "Keep the command." Oh, these, this is done. In other words, Jesus had a unique way of speaking to people. Right. And for some TV show writer to think that he can emulate that, put words in Jesus' mouth, I think it's in there. Yeah, the TV show cannot replicate um, how Jesus communicates or, or what we have presented to us in the Gospels of how Jesus communicates. It's a, it's a, it's a fiction in the end, um, no matter how well it may be done. But back to what Lane was talking about, he was asking the question about you know, what it means to, uh, to pray in the Spirit. Is there a particular Bible verse you're thinking of as well, or just that idea in general? Yeah. And what I was saying is going back to people who have get so wrapped up in their emotion and their their thought process. Right. Pray from the heart, you know, to almost kind of bring the brain off and just let right. Yeah, so there I think we could talk it depends what you mean by it, but you can talk about it probably in a negative sense and a positive sense. The negative sense is what you're talking about in terms of when someone's just, it's all about the emotions, it's just what they feel, and when it is never a good thing when someone turns their intelligence off. And that's what people do all the time. They turn off their brains, and it's just about whatever they feel inside, and then just what comes out, as if that's their authentic, real person. Um, And sometimes it is, because what comes out is all kinds of sinful and Terrible stuff, and that's what Jesus talks about. It out of the heart of man comes all these unclean things. Um, but when someone turns their brain off, and it just becomes about what they feel inside that just comes spewing out of them, what many people will think, and you'll see this especially in charismatic circles, is they think, well, that's the spirit talking. That's the spirit inside me just coming out. Well, no, it's probably a lot of your issues that are coming out rather than the, the spirit in the now, if you're talking about praying in the Spirit in terms of um, not just Romans 8, where you, you know, you've got the groanings too deep for words, but in the sense that you know, the Spirit does help us when we pray. And all of our praying should be done uh, with the Spirit. And I, I don't mean this in a charismatic sense, but I mean that there is... Prayer is a means of grace where we do truly have a relationship with God, and the Spirit is active in that. And that's something that we should strive for. We should strive to grow in prayer. 
I mean, the disciples even came to Jesus and said, teach us how to pray. And then he gives us the, you know, the rubric of the Lord's Prayer. Um, and that's to teach and train the disciples, and by extension all Christians, of how do we grow and improve in, in praying to God. Uh, one of the things I, I forgot to mention that he talks about in this, uh, in this letter is, um, you know, for a new Christian, often they think that praying has to be spontaneous. It has to be something that just comes up in the moment. There's nothing wrong with spontaneous prayers. Those are, uh, those are important. But this is often done to the exclusion of written prayers or thought-out prayers or even learned prayers from other people. And those aren't all bad things as they are, um, as they are actually good prayers. I mean, the Lord's Prayer is a written set form of words that Jesus has given us that we are to, to use and then learn from and apply to different areas. You know, you don't always have to pray, um, uh, um, give us our, day, our daily bread. Well, it's appropriate to, an ap- uh, a proper application of that clause, give us this day our daily bread, is to pray about your job. You know, I need a job. Help provide for me. You may not say daily bread, but help provide for me, help me to be able to provide for my family, provide for our needs, things like that. That's appropriate application of it. Um, I'm rambling a little bit here. So but all of that to say, prayer doesn't have to always just be spontaneous, but there is a value of using good Christian prayers from the past to learn from, to be like, okay, this is how godly Christians have learned how to pray and have relationship with God, and to use those and start to not just parrot them, but start to learn from what is it that they're praying about and how are they praying about it and then applying it to yourself. And this is how children learn to pray. I learned to pray by listening to my parents. And there are things that I still pray, the same thing that they prayed, such as, you know, around the family meal and, you know, things like that. But also over time, you start to take the principles and apply them in your own personal way to your own situation and things like that. But that's just training and teaching about how one has that relationship with God. Um, But prayer in the end is supposed to be done in the spirit. And so, uh, praying in the Spirit in that sense of uh, having relationship and communion with God by the Spirit in prayer is not a bad thing. The way the Charismatics and others try to talk about it is just being this emotional volcano that comes out where you're not actually actively mentally engaged. That's not what the Bible's talking about. And that, that's another trick Satan Praying in gibberish is, you know, that could be letter five. It's not, but that could be the next letter uh, in screw tape letters. That's, yeah. So. That's where a lot of charismatic things that take the idea of praying in the spirit and praying in tongues. Yeah. Yeah. At least the, the modern application of what the charismatics do is, is gibberish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, even in, in the beginning, when, when Pentecostalism first came out, Yeah. Then, then later on, she began to write in which is also an interesting study. And then uh, the biggest failure in the Pentecostals was when they decided that they could go on the mission field because God would give them the, the gift of tongues and they could go to India or China and speak that language. And so when they got to India and they found out they couldn't speak Hindi, they had to backtrack a little bit and yep. go, go to the missionaries that were there and try to learn the language. Yeah. So it, it's it's been a scam. Yeah, Pentecostalism and Charismaticism—they're—they're they're, all of their uh, attempts to apply the idea of praying in tongues, and you know, it just doesn't work. Um, but that could be a whole other topic. Yeah, and that's not what Elaine <laughs> was talking about. <laughs> yeah. So, any other uh, any other questions or comments? Letter three, letter four, anything else connected? Yes, Lou. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. Yeah. That's what's popular today. Like page 16, and it just And he, that wasn't, you know, popular back when he wrote it, but it's really fun. Yep. 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 Yeah. Lynn's pointing, bringing out, you know, this was written back in the 1940s, and yet a lot of the things he's talking about are things we see happening today. And particularly, you know, you're connecting it to the new age movement, all these, you know, meditations, emptying your minds, things like that. It's very fascinating. Meditation today, the way it's commonly used is, you know, trying to empty your mind of all thoughts to kind of reach this space of almost nothingness in your head. Um, Well, Christians have been talking about meditations for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And it's the exact opposite. Christian meditation is not about emptying your mind. It's about focusing your mind on Scripture or on the characteristics of God or on God himself or you know, things like that. It's about actually filling your mind and concentrating your mind on certain things. And, uh, I mean, Christian meditation is an important thing. We, I mean, um, Scriptures talk about, you know, I meditate on your word day and night. To fill your mind with that and to think about it and apply it and focus on it. The exact opposite of what people try to do today. And, I mean, this, you know, I, I, I won't get all the way on the soapbox, but, you know, the, the, the emptying, there, there's so much of the New Age culture, spiritualism today, that is specifically targeted towards emptying the individual's mind of all reason and intellect, of not thinking. And part of the reason for that is that God has created us as thinking, reasonable creatures. And he even says in the Bible, come let us reason together. But Satan doesn't want us to think. This goes back to you know, some of the letters before. You know, Don't let him think about the ultimate questions. Don't let him think about this, that, or the other thing. Because what happens when you start to do that, you start to do the things that God enabled us and created us to do. And who knows where you're going to end up in this. If Satan can get everyone to just stop thinking and just be like, mm, all the time, he'd be totally happy. Because then we're just a bunch of empty nothings going around. Okay, off the soapbox. That, I, I, anyway, there's a lot more to be said about that. But you're exactly right. You know, Lewis is writing 80-some-odd years ago about things that are just as applicable and happening, maybe in slightly different forms, but still happening going on today. Yeah, Crystal. I saw when Church was saying we're going to have a revival this Sunday. It's a man. Yeah. You know, we're going to cause this revival. Well, no. So when we're praying on Sunday, you know, we're here in church, we should gather up all our emotions and pray in the Spirit. Right then, it's all of us right here now. God needs to be. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just uh, for Zoom, bringing out you know the fact that um, you know you've got a lot of churches that they say you know what well, we're going to have a revival this weekend, and it's like well we don't get to tell God when He's going to start working and do stuff, and uh, you know in the in the Great Awakenings there was some stuff that was good, uh, and there was a lot of stuff that was bad, and a lot of that bad, especially in the, the Second Great Awakening was this manufacturing of uh, religious emotion so as to produce revivals, basically. And again, this is exactly what Lewis is talking about. You know, just so focusing on the emotion to the exclusion of everything else. And all it does in the end, I mean, you have what's called the burned over district in New York where a lot of this stuff was concentrated. It's destroyed generations of spirituality in those geographical locations. Because you came in with all these false teachings, false emotions, uh, false stirring everything up, and it destroyed people. And it's destroyed generations. You know, these areas that were burned over by this that are just so spiritually dark now. Um, there, I mean, there can be terrible consequences from getting a lot of this stuff wrong. Right, any other uh, comments or questions? Yes, like that burn off generation. There was no electricity. 
um, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, you know, when you've got a, you know, when you have those revivals going on, I, you know, I don't know that I can say that there was none who were truly converted, but you've got a, I mean, yeah, you know, if they're one of God's elect, they're going to be converted and they can be converted even through a bad means. Um, but uh, what was I going to say? I lost my train of thought. Yeah, so, so, the, so the elect would be converted there, but... Um, right, right, yes, yes, yeah. So, but, I, you know, part of the point I'm making there is that we see the, the, the legacy and the destruction that happened because of all those bad needs as well. And it's a... It's a bad testimony, or it, it should be a warning for us. Yeah, yeah. So, anything else tonight? All right. Well, let me uh, let me go ahead and open it up. If there's any um, any prayer requests that anyone wants to share this evening. Yeah, Brett, Brent Sutton with uh, leukemia, prayed for him Sunday night. Um, yeah, he's going to have a bone marrow transplant. Uh, he's over at Moffitt right now. Yeah, it, it's, yeah it's very um, involved, the whole process. So they're waiting to um, do all the prep for him. Okay. So prep stage, but has the brother's donor. I would imagine, I don't know for certain, but I mean, donating bone marrow, I don't know how that cannot be hard. So, yeah. Any other? Uh, yes, Heather. Oh, no. Is this Ralph or Kirk? Uh, Heather's brother, Ra- uh, Kirk. <laughs> so used to talking about Ralph. Uh, Kirk, I said that right? Yeah. Um, just got back from a cruise, um, but it's, uh, he's getting over it, but was sick afterwards. So just praying for his recovery. Yeah. Yes, we pray for him. Anything else? All right. Uh, Let me uh, close this this evening in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this study. We uh, ask that you would, by your spirit, that you'd be with us, uh, helping us as we um, think about and work through all these different uh, issues and topics, prayer, sanctification, relationships with others, things like that. We we ask that you would uh, be working in us. We ask that you would help us to to see... um, issues that we may have that we may not have been aware of, that your spirit would be working in our hearts, um, illuminating them, um, shining a light on areas that we need to be confronted with. And we ask that you would help all of us to, to grow in our sanctification, that we would, um, that you would deliver us from the, the evil one, that you would deliver us from temptation, and that you would help us to, uh, to grow and to be faithful and to, to follow after you. We pray for, uh, these requests and needs that have been uh, brought up tonight. We think of uh, Brent Sutton and his battle with leukemia. We thank you that a donor has been provided for him and his brother. Uh, but we ask that you would, especially now as they're in this prep stage for um, for doing this transplant, that this, uh, that this would go well, that you would um, help prepare the bodies uh, to be able to go through this process. We ask that you would give the doctors wisdom and guidance uh, when they eventually do this procedure. And we ask that it would be successful and that um, you know, we know it's a, a long recovery process and, and difficult for, for both individuals. We ask that you would uh, be with them both, help their bodies to recover, that the transplant would go well, and that it would bring uh, healing and relief to Brent. Uh, we pray for uh, Heather's brother, Kirk, and uh, as he recently got back from a cruise and has been sick, we thank you that he has been making progress, but we ask that you would uh, continue to help his body to, to fight off this illness as it's, it's been a while now. 
And um, we know there's a, a lot of illness going around and a lot of it's been very difficult and uh, for a lot of people and, and, and stronger than we might have expected. And so we pray for healing for Kirk and ask that you would help him recover quickly. Uh, we pray for all of us as we travel home this evening. We ask that you would protect us and keep us safe. Uh, we ask that you would help us as, as Christians to love each other well and to, to build each other up in the faith that uh, we might uh, stand strong together as the body of Christ. We ask that you would gather us back together again this Lord's Day, that we might enjoy each other's fellowship, but above all, that we would enjoy fellowship with you, our God, and uh, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.